Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy with your host, Lou Augusta. Lou is one of the premier empathy consultants in the community today. In this program, Lou and his guest experts will help you understand and expand your empathy. In doing so, you may discover a side of yourself that you never even knew existed. Now, here is Lou Augusta. Hi, this is Lou Augusta. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy. The occasion for this show is the publication of my book, A Rumor of Empathy, Resistance, Narrative, Recovery. Now, I and my friends are excited about this. And what the public has said to me is, great work, Lou, nice work. But what I really need is tips and techniques, how to expand my empathy in the next 50 minutes. And in some cases, it's okay, but I need it by Friday. By the way, it's already Wednesday at noon. I've been listening, and so that's what this show is about. Expanding one's empathy, empathy, tips, and techniques. Now, the idea is to create a context in which we can have a conversation about empathy and about expanding one's empathy and expanding my empathy and your empathy and empathy tips and techniques. And I can rattle off a list. I'm not going to do that because as soon as I'm going to, we're going to get into it and I'm going to give and discuss and drill down and say what the principles and guidance and tips and techniques are. And I'm also going to talk about what the heck does it mean, right? So the main tip and technique right up front, be quiet and listen to the other person. Be quiet and listen to what the other person is saying to you, to me. Now, that's easier said than done, which leads me to all the usual disclaimers. This points to the main challenge, my main challenge, in doing a 50-minute show on how to expand your empathy. Empathy requires being quiet and listening. I'm going to be doing too much talking to be empathic in the full sense of the word. But this is what we have. This is what we're dealing with. So I'm going to invite you to help me and be a part of the program. In the second and third segments of the show, Dial in and pose your questions and comments. The dial in, the toll-free number is 888-346-9141. We'll get this thing going, and then I want to hear from you. I want to hear your empathy tips and techniques. So here's the main challenge. I'm doing too much talking to be empathic. What I've tried to do in previous shows, in conversations with James Gabarino, Alice Dreger, Misha Zupko, uh, and other people that I've interviewed, is make present empathy in the conversation and on the air, right? So my ultimate inauthenticity The guy who's just published a book on empathy, has written on empathy, struggles with his own empathy. On a good day, I get there. I'm in the zone. I provide the other person who's telling me about their struggle. I provide him with a gracious and generous listening, empathy. Other times, I struggle like everyone else. So this is part of creating a context 
where the tips and techniques can actually be engaged. So I acknowledge my ultimate inauthenticity. The author of a book on empathy has to work at being empathic. Like I say, on a good day, I get there. On a less good day, I struggle like everyone else. And I have learned a few things in the past couple of years, in the past couple of decades, having acknowledged my ultimate inauthenticity, inauthenticity, I also recognize that my empathy has expanded, grown, developed, unfolded, matured by practicing and attending to it, working on it. It expands. Work on it, you get more effective at it. A bold statement of the obvious. Now, as far as I can remember, my actual I'm going to be a little bit edgy here. My formal training in empathy started when I was about three or four years old. My mom, my mother would tell me bedtime stories. Now, you know, now that I mention it, my father would actually tell me stories, too. And he had a couple of whoppers uh, from his service in single-handedly winning World War II, the Second World War, in which he served and which, for which I continue to honor my late father even now. Nevertheless, we're going to work on mom at this moment. Mostly my mom, she would make, so I'm three years old, right? I got a tricycle. She, mom would make a hole out of my, she would make a totality out of my experience by telling me stories at bedtime. There was this, she would tell me about this imaginary boy His name was Doodlebug. Doodlebug. This is a little revealing, but I think in a humorous and interesting and engaging way. Doodlebug would ride his tricycle. He would visit the Indian chief. He'd make a treaty with the chief. This is how he spent his day. He would go to the bakery and get cookies. And he would, at the bakery, stand on his noodle for apple strudel. Now, as a three-year-old, I had no idea what apple strudel was. And as a four-year-old, when I found out, I found I didn't like it very much. Now, my tastes have improved since then, and I like apple strudel fine. Nevertheless, that's the story. So this was empathy training. Make a whole of the experience and give it back to the listener. In this case, the kid, me, was the listener. So I honor my late mom for that. So advice to parents, if you want to increase, expand, I should say, your empathy with your child, your children, they're of tender age, (laughs) children of all ages. If you want to expand your child's empathy for herself or himself, have a bedtime story. Bring the day to a close in an affectionate, engaging way. If you can make up a story, that's great. If you want to read a story, there are a lot of great storybooks. Let the child decide what he or she wants to read. As, uh, you know, as, a, as a parent, and uh, that's what I did. I told stories to my daughter. When she got bigger, I let her pick the book. You know, She's 10 years old. 11. We, we had story time. It was great. It was great. I enjoyed it, too. She would get to pick, pick what we were reading. As a, uh, We got to the point where we were, we were reading Little Women. We got to the point she asked for the Tolkien trilogy. So I did, you know, that's what we got out. Now, uh, some of it's pretty dark. Some of it got a little bit edited. Nevertheless, she wanted it. She got it. For children of tender age, Richard Scarry. Richard Scarry, that's a genius. I believe it's actually all the the late Richard Scarry at this time. Uh, For, uh, you know, uh, Huckle and the Pirates, uh, Lowly Worm and the Plumber. Uh, the point is to have a time together in which affection and imagination, fun and engagement, and 
calming, you know? I mean, I think Tolkien was a little overstimulating. Nevertheless, he was grown up. It worked pretty well. And so when the times get tough, you know, then she was willing to listen. So story time narrative, giving the other person back their own experience in a form that they can recognize and integrate. There is someone famous who said that. Actually, I get to quote from my own book, right? The occasion for the show. I published a book, A Rumor of Empathy, Resistance, Narrative, and Recovery in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis. Analysis. Rutledge, Taylor and Francis Group, a single line from Hans Lowald. Page 25 in my book, I'm quoting him. If an interpretation of meaning is timely, the words by which this meaning is expressed are recognized to the other person as expressions of what he experiences or she experiences, right? The the meaning is recognizable to the other person, whether that person is a client or a patient or a customer or a kid at bedtime story. They're recognized. That's the empathic moment. The this, the narrative, the, 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 the words enable the person, the other person, to organize, experience firsthand, put into their own words, and therefore integrate what was previously intangible, invisible, unspeakable, or otherwise incoherent. It gets coherent. Okay, so that's actually an example. Now, back to tips and techniques that you can use immediately. Next tip and technique, distinguish between listening to, distinguish between listening to what the other person is saying and one's opinion of what the other person is saying. So speaking in the first person, I get to distinguish between what you're saying and my opinion of what you're saying as I'm listening to you. So pick an example. Let's keep something, uh, someone says something to you. It will work best. You pick an example, oh dear listener. It will work best if the statement, if they're telling you something confronting and personal, but for purposes of the example, maybe not too personal and not too obviously insulting. We'll deal with insults later. You don't know my tough customers, right? Well, I kind of do. So the wife says, please clean out the garage. Another example. So I'm speaking from the guy point of view. The wife says, my mother thinks you don't spend enough time with the kids. The wife says, honey, could you install the ceiling fan? That's the folk song. Honey, could you install the ceiling fan in the bedroom that we purchased last October? By the way, it's now June of the next year. Okay, so pick another example. The boss says, going forward, after every customer interaction, we will sign into the CRM system and either update the customer record or add a new customer. You're thinking whatever you're thinking. So in order to make, so pick an example. I'm going to go with cleaning out the garage here, uh, just as a statement. So I'm listening to that statement. So now, am I listening to what my honey is saying, or am I listening to my opinion of what she's saying? That makes a big difference. That's the key to opening up some empathy to distinguish that. In order to make this distinction now, you have to be able to listen to yourself so that you can hear all the ways you're interrupting yourself, right? I have to be able to listen to myself so I can hear all the way I'm interrupting myself, all the stories I'm telling myself, all the stories you're telling yourself, the opinions, judgments, assessments that a person gives himself which, simply stated, are getting between 
you and listening to the other person, our getting between me and listening to the other person. So that's the key distinction. What's the other person saying and my opinion of what they're saying? Now, if you really listen to yourself and your opinion, it's going to take at least three steps. I have to be quiet so I can listen to myself. I have to be quiet. So I hear often, and you, if you listen, you'll hear something like this. You may hear something. It's possible. Consider the possibility. This is not the truth with a capital T, but consider the possibility. I'm hearing something of the form, been there, done that. I know that already. Agreement, disagreement. In this case, maybe I'm feeling nagged. I, I'm listening from the point of view or wrong or right. I like that. I don't like that. It may even be something devaluing. Get off my case. Or it may be something smart. It could be very positive, right? Something overvaluing. You might like the one or the other better, but that doesn't necessarily make praise more valid or justified than blame or condemnation, or in this case, a request. Ultimately, what I'm evaluating, assessing, opinionating gets between me and what the other person is saying. So if I can repeat what they've said to myself, if I can give it back to them, if I have the time and it's possible in the nature of the relationship, let me see if I'm getting this right. You believe I should spend some time cleaning up the garage. You believe I should spend more time with the kids. See if I get it right and then I'll find out. And that, then I can take some action or not take some action or negotiate further or not, or just, you know, clear the schedule and get it handled, which is always a useful thing to do. Now, no, I mean, and so the listener now has access to the, what the other person has actually said without adding opinion, agreement, disagreement. And what the other is saying gives me access to their experience. Then I can check. Oh, sweetheart, your experience is that the garage is cluttered. Your experience is that you're afraid the car is going to get dinked by the bicycles and the lawnmower and whatever, you know, this other pile of stuff is in the way. Now, I could make it mean, now maybe this is what really I heard. I'm lazy. Maybe, but now wait a minute, guys. She did not say that I was lazy. That would be an example of the favorite indoor sport of jumping to conclusions. Now, maybe after working 40 or 60 hours, one feels like relaxing. But if you stick with what is said, she definitely did not say that I was lazy. In this case, my own devaluing or pro provocative or inaccurate opinion. So I start out giving a simple example, and it turns out that the devil is in the details. We may usefully take a step back and define our terms. So you see what I mean? This gives me access to what she's feeling. Empathy, this is a definition, right? We're going to go, to what's, so Lou, define your terms. How, how do I define this thing? I know what you're feeling, not as a merger, but because I feel it too. I know what you're feeling, like not as sympathy, as a reaction, 
but as a vicarious experience, as if I've got a movie of your experience, or I'm in the theater experiencing vicariously with the protagonist or the hero or the anti-hero or the person having the experiences is going through, as in a movie or as in a novel, I'm reading a novel. What's like a sample, a trace affect of your experience. Well, in this example, clean out the her experience is that that the garage is cluttered, it's messy, she's afraid of dinking the car. All I mean, this is these are consider the possibility. These are on the the short list and I could check. Well, I mean, you know, maybe there's another well, you know, park it on the street. Well, maybe that's not the best answer in this case. How's that going to land, right? So that's not going to further the empathic process. So that's the the first rough and ready definition of empathy. I know what you are experiencing because I experience it also, not as a merger or as an identification, but as a vicarious experience, a trace feeling or a sample of your experience, a vicarious experience such as one might have with the hero or protagonist in a movie at the theater reading a story, right? Narrative, a novel. So just to give a shout out, to somebody. Uh, this maps closely to the work of Heinz Kohut and vicarious introspection. He put empathy on the map in the 70s and 80s. Now, interesting, in, this is a slight digression, but I think it is, it is of the essence and at the moment. Uh, I, had, I sometimes teach history and systems of psychology. I, some, I teach a lot of different things from time to time. Uh, empathy in uh, the context of philosophy. And so I had one of my classes do a survey. So here was the, you know, you might do this as well. Uh, go out and ask five people, not necessarily members of your family. This will work best if you're, if they're acquaintances, friends and strangers, just to get some distance there so that you can try to, you know, they, they don't actually know the answer that you're looking for. Ask them how they define empathy. Just get that data and report back. So that's what the, the individuals and the participants in the class did. They asked five people and they reported back. So here's the result. And over, there was actually a significant trend. And it's more like, you know, the 80-20 rule. Most people think that empathy is compassion, being kind, altruistic, being charitable. And heavens knows the world needs more compassion. The world needs more kindness, charity, altruism. But these are not empathy. There's a distinction there. Empathy tells me what the other person is experiencing, what the other person is feeling. Ethics, morality, compassion, altruism tells me what to do about it. That's Lou Augusta. You can take it to the bank. And that's also in the book. So the next definition of empathy, I can hear some of you saying, yeah, yeah, okay, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, the next definition, folk psychology and folk wisdom define empathy as walking in the other person's shoes. Take a walk. What's it like to be in my moccasins, your moccasins, your shoes, my shoes? Folk wisdom is usually accurate. Folk wisdom is almost never wrong but it's sometimes incomplete. Do I walk in your shoes with your feet or my own feet? That's the tough question. Rarely are the feet of two people exactly alike. Even if they're the same shoe size, the point is that I'm gonna find out where the shoe pinches or chafes or blisters. If I'm walking in your shoes, 
I'm going to find that out. If you're walking in mine, the idea is for you to find out. And to do that, I got to have your feet. Now, that's not impossible to imagine, but it's sometimes not simple. When we're neighbors, we live in the same community, we have the similar values, then it's easier, right? I'm born in Chicago, roughly middle-class family, get a college, get an education of some kind. You're poor, born in South Asia, have a limited schooling. We are both human beings, to be sure. Don't overlook, don't forget the humanity. On the other hand, without taking on the other person's character traits, personality, at least in imagination, what's, what happens is we get the egocentric fallacy. That is to say, we get projection of one's own traits onto the other person. You like strawberries, I like chocolate. A simple example, to be sure. But the bottom line is, yes, take a walk in the shoes of the other person, but remember to think about what shoe size they have in relation to yours and how that makes you feel. Make sense? Let me know if it doesn't, that toll-free number, 888-346-9141. And so next tip and technique, moving right along, I'm going to actually skip ahead here to tip number eight. Ready? Expand empathy by removing obstacles to empathy. This is one of those, okay, great, I got that. What the heck does that mean? This is also an answer to the devilish question of whether or not one can teach empathy. So I was having lunch with my friend, Professor Ray Chachi, and he said to me, Lou, I challenge you, is empathy teachable? See, I'm proposing to teach a course on empathy down in school. Empathy is not even teachable, man. How are you going to teach a class in this thing? And the answer is, so here's the answer and answer. People are naturally empathic. And if one removes the obstacles to empathy, and that's the teaching part, that's the work, that's the training, that's the education, that's the round and round and back and forth, that's the struggle, that's the engagement with the challenge. Engage with the challenges, the resistances, the obstacles, the stuff. If one can reduce Reduce those, remove them best, reduce them, contain them, manage them, control them, shut them down, then a person's natural empathy unfolds. It's given an opportunity to develop. It shows up. It comes forth. It, however one wants to put it, it develops, it evolves. So to repeat, you know, just for emphasis, people are naturally empathic until authoritarian authorities, bosses, teachers, Sometimes parents, peers, drive the empathy out of them or drive it underground. This is confronting. This causes people to be alienated from their own empathy and from that of others. Now, don't get me wrong. People are born empathic, but they're also born learning to need toilet training. Put the mess in one spot or the community suffers from disease and from mess, right? People also need to learn reading, math, communicating and writing. But there's a genuine sense in which learning to conform and following all the rules, and by the way, the drumbeat of compliance, rulemaking, seems to be going on by leaps and bounds. That's a growth industry, compliance if I've ever seen one. And 
that, that does not, the point is that does not expand our empathy necessarily or expand our community. Definitely pay your taxes, stop on red, go on green, but also beware that rule making in the narrow sense is not wrong, but it's not necessarily increasing anyone's empathy. Therefore, the empathy training consists in removing the obstacles to empathy, letting the natural, one might say, God-given empathy of the human being unfold, emerge, show up, evolve, develop. So the top obstacles to empathy, I'm making this list up, right? Shame, guilt, egocentrism, many forms of narcissism, not all, many forms, lack of integrity, inauthenticity, hypocrisy, making excuses, finger pointing, jealousy, envy. I suppose we ought to add the seven deadly sins or whatever your interpretation of them is. Being more of a victim than anybody else, which is way different than being a survivor. So competition in victimhood is an obstacle to empathy. Knowing it all, being a know it at all, and being right, especially one when one actually is right. I would add specific forms of Kafkaesque bureaucracy, Kafkaesque compliance and rulemaking. This list is not complete Kafka, uncanny. Some, some interesting engaging, uh, I, if I do, do dare say it's a little bit like the Twilight Zone. Now here is where a quote from the first Zorro movie where it is appropriate. You may recall, if you don't, here, the, the, the first Zorro, in the first recent Zorro movie, uh, when Antonio Banderas, who is playing the new Zorro, tells the legacy Zorro, Bob Hoskins, this is gonna be a tough job. Now, if I have to explain the joke, it's not funny. So we'll just keep moving on. So let's take an example. Obstacle to empathy, shame. That's an obstacle to empathy. Remove shame, good chance, high probability, empathy is going to develop and unfold. High probability. So I'm gonna quote a single sentence from a book entitled Dignity by Donna Hicks, Yale University Press, 2011. So I'm selling a lot of books by other people here, but I hope I sell a couple of my own too. Anyway, a single quote. Research shows that people feel the shame of being ashamed. People feel ashamed of being ashamed. They often deny it rather than talk about it. Talk about it, that is shame, end quote. So one has survived something. For example, let's get an example. One is a college student, an emerging adult. One is put on academic probation. One you don't clean up your act. The next thing that happens is the person is dropped from school for academic reasons. The person feels enormous shame for the dismissal, the dropping. They may also say, hooray, because this wasn't working for me. But oftentimes, you know, when there are expectations and family is, is working on it, the person feels ashamed. And then the person feels ashamed that they're ashamed. He or she does not tell his parents, pretends to be going to school, and three months later, it comes out because how could it not come out? But the person was the student, the former student, was paralyzed by shame and by shame at being ashamed. Now, how does one remove shame and let the natural empathy unfold? Empathy and humanity 
are incomparable, incompatible with shame and shaming. So the first guidance, so we're going to remove some shame. The first guidance, one always feels the way one feels. If I feel ashamed, I feel ashamed. That's it. If you feel ashamed, you're ashamed. Denying one feels ashamed is already shame at being ashamed. Right? Think about it. Denying that one feels ashamed is already shame at being ashamed. Shame causes one thing for sure, more shame. So how does one overcome shame? Three steps. Acknowledgement, right? The recognition of what one feels. Acknowledge what you feel. See what becomes possible, what becomes visible, visible or was hidden in plain view. Granted that. Make a request. In our example, one might be the cause of one's own academic failure or, or success. Go to the tutoring or ask for whatever is missing. I've heard from I've heard a lot of stories from high school students and uh, so on. But you know whether it's uh, tutoring or consultation, uh, what I'm saying is uh, more rulemaking here is not necessarily going to make a difference, but. Uh, Ask for what you need or think you need. And uh, the third step is consider forgiving oneself, oneself only. Since hindsight is twenty twenty, and, you know, mine is as good as anybody else's, that knocks out the shame at being ashamed. Maybe, let's say, one can't help feel ashamed of being dropped from school. And then people go on and further add guilt and wrongness and a whole level of emotionality to it. And I'm not saying, you know, this is good news. One uh, may want to take a look at where one's commitments really lie. In any case, I'm giving you some guidance on how to clean up what needs cleaning up. So the boy or young woman who tried to hide his failure from the folks needs to clean that up, right? Oh, dear folks, I acknowledge I was not forthcoming. I was not, I was not my best self. So from the perspective of the person who is providing the empathy, delivering the empathy, getting the shame at being ashamed is a subtle nuance in one's empathic receptivity. I'm let's say I'm receptive to the other person. I get it. The other person is experiencing shame embedded within shame, at least two levels of shame. In this example, ashamed at being dropped from school and shame at feeling ashamed, like one should not feel ashamed. So insert your story or narrative of choice at this point. The nuance in one's empathic receptivity, and that creates a space for empathy to unfold. Now we're coming up. So if you have any questions about that, uh, we're going coming up on a break and I hope you'll plan on calling it 888-346-9141 to review what we've engaged and discussed so far. First tip and technique, be quiet. Listen to the other person. Second, Distinguish what the other person is saying from my opinion, 
my judgment, my assessment. Do I agree? Do I disagree? Do I know it all or know it already is my listening? Distinguish what they say from my understanding of what they're saying so that I can be with what they're saying. And so there. And third, remove the obstacles to empathy. The, uh, now, we haven't done that. I've given a specific example, the obstacles to empathy. It is interesting that the resistance to empathy is more than one might expect. I mean, empathy, what's not to like? This is like motherhood and apple pie, right? I mean, for those listeners in the USA, you'll know what that means, especially around Thanksgiving. Nevertheless, there can be subtle resistances to being fully in the presence of another human being, so to speak, emotionally naked. Now, keep your clothes on, ladies and gentlemen, unless you're engaging in with a committed, agreed, permissioned uh, encounter with a willing, loving partner. Nevertheless, there is subtle resistance to empathy, and you see some of that in the long list of things that get in the way of empathy. If empathy were natural and easy, it is natural, but if it were easy, there would be more of it in the world. If it's so great and so straightforward, why isn't there more of it? Subtle, I suggest in answer, it's not like this is the truth, but I suggest that there are subtle resistances to empathy, which have to be engaged and in effect disassembled through an empathic interaction. So empathy becomes a way of increasing empathy. Once again, this is easier said than done. And so we have about one minute to break. And I want to say, uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to engage with further tips and techniques, how to expand your empathy. And especially in the next segment of the show, I want to hear what you have to say, your questions, your challenges, your tough cases, 888-346-9141. This is Lou Augusta. You are listening to How to Expand Your Empathy. We'll be right back. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Lou Augusta is one of the premier educators and empathy consultants in action in the community today. As the author of three books on empathy and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Philosophy Department on Empathy and Interpretation, Lou provides three services. Empathy Consulting and Education, 
in which he coaches individuals and organizations on how to expand the results they are getting in their life, business, or organization by expanding their empathy. Individual psychotherapy services to help with recovery from trauma or other confronting personal issues where Lou's commitment is to provide a gracious and generous listening as providing access to shifting out of resignation into engagement, action, and accomplishment and delivering the empathy training seminar and workshop for groups where the participants get access to the deep infrastructure of empathy. For further details, see Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy. To reach Lou Augusta or his guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to arumorofempathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Lou Augusta, and welcome back to A Rumor of Empathy. Today, we are engaging with the naughty issue, the complex issue, tips and techniques in expanding one's empathy. My listeners have said to me, Lo, you wrote a book. That's great. What I need is how to expand my empathy in the next 24 hours, sometimes in the next 15 minutes. Well, it's a tall order. I'm asking your understanding. Rome wasn't built in a day. The idea is to create a context in which we can have a conversation about empathy and about tips and techniques. Anything that gets a person in touch with her or his humanness counts as training in empathy, at least indirectly. Indirectly. So studying the humanities, literature, art, music, these open up areas of the brain that map to empathy and activate it. Reading literature, Maya Angelou, Paolo Cuyo, C-O-E-H-L-O, he's out there. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Milan Kundera, Jerzy Kaczynski, Robertson Davies, a lot of my favorites. Hey, The Iliad and the Odyssey, Candide by Voltaire, The Tempest, A Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare, Dickens, Charles Dickens, Kafka, There's an edgy Kafka, Franz Kafka, an edgy story that gets one in touch with one's humanity. Now, I must say, some of his stories read rather like the Twilight Zone. So there's an edge to it. Nevertheless, it it opens up areas of humanity. And so moving right along, let's get back to it. The next tip and technique on the list for expanding one's empathy is to distinguish what happened from what I made it mean. So guidance to you, you distinguish what happened from what you, you all, made it mean. So uh, I hope a funny, edgy, engaging example. She did not put the cap on the toothpaste. And I made it mean she doesn't love me. 
She squeezes the toothpaste from the top, not the bottom, the way I have requested for about 101 times, and I made it mean she wants to break up. Of course, this is ridiculous. It's a joke, right? If I have to explain the joke, it's not funny. But the idea is to be a little bit edgy. Think about it. This is really how out there and crazy people get. She didn't, I didn't put out the cap on the toothpaste. Somebody made it mean I didn't. Wait a minute. It means I didn't put the cap on the toothpaste. Now notice here how the opinion, the evaluation gets in the way of communicating, of being with the other person. What her experience is, and this is once again, not the truth, but consider the possibility that here her experience is she doesn't like the mess. Her experience is let's, let's, Keep the mess contained in this area. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, this becomes significant and engaging and even dark and serious where what happens is traumatic. Survivors, for survivors of trauma, right? Pick up, uh, nobody picks up the newspaper anymore because newsprint is under the bus. But, you know, check Google News or WSJ.com or your favorite story. Uh, source of 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 information, and it's one atrocity, one ad- disaster, one trauma after another in the world, and th- that's really no joke. Uh, so uh, here, what happened? So let's get on an, an example on the table, so to speak, which we can work with how uh, distinguishing between what happened and what the person made it mean can be effective in opening up empathy, right? And then bringing forth empathy, which is our goal. Create a context in which empathy comes forth and flourish, and that counts as removing the resistance to empathy and, in effect, training in empathy. So what happened is that dad chased him around the dining room table a number of times, actually. He was trying to escape, caught him, and hit him repeatedly. So that's the scenario. What happened is... Dad chased him around the table, caught him, and walloped him, and walloped him repeatedly, repeatedly. Now, I want to, I don't just want to, I acknowledge the boundary violation and hitting children and hitting anyone is unacceptable. We get to the empathic moment, moment, the empathic dimension. The survivor knows that he or she is not to blame. In this case, no one wants to be hit. As noted, it's not right. It's not okay. It's literally a crime, but there's not necessarily going to be a police report because there wasn't. The survivor knows that, but there seems inevitably to be a moment when the survivor says, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve that? Am I that bad, that awful, that that I had to be treated that way? No answer, right? This is the person talking to himself. This is the voiceover. This is the voice in the, in the back of the head, which isn't necessarily who this person is authentically, but that's what comes up. What And so distinguish what happened from what the person made it mean. Distinguish from what happened from what you made it mean. What happened from what I made it mean. What happened is the person got hit repeatedly. What they made it mean is that The person is bad and wrong. That is the position that needs to be challenged, investigated, worked through, overturned. There seems 
you know, the suspicion, I say, you know, but the suspicion seems to be there's a design feature, I would call it maybe even a defect in human nature, in being human, that causes the person, you, me, the survivor, to take responsibility. Now, taking responsibility in general is a good thing, but there's this feature which causes us to do it for things for which we're not responsible. People are not responsible for the family they're born into. Now, once they get here, there is a trajectory of development of increasing responsibility. And now that's another story. And we'll get, we're born into whatever we're born into, the country and location. And this show is heard, you know, all over the planet. And so, so there's a lot of contingency, much contingency, much thrownness. That's straight out of Heidegger, Being in Time, Chapter 5. I acknowledge you know, there are many issues for survivors of trauma which are not being covered here. What we want to cover is the distinction between what happened and what I made it mean. And the, the meaning, I'm not worthy, I'm not, I did something to deserve this, gets in the way, right? And so if one can reduce that, limit that, contain that, call it out so one can see, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. You know, that's not. Then the empathy is given a chance to unfold and flourish. And here's, here's the next step. It's, it's ba actually back to shame. The survivor is embarrassed or ashamed of what he or she went through, even though one knows one is not to blame for having been the victim of a crime or a battle casualty or the survivor of, an, of, of a life-changing automobile accident. You know, maybe people will think I'm broken or unfit or apply some other devaluing label. People, by the way, are going to think whatever they think. One, and here's another. This is not really a formal tip and technique, but we really can't stop people from thinking whatever they think and to an extent saying what they say. Although this is the steady drumbeat of conformity and compliance. Be sure to conform. Be sure. To, well, maybe, uh, you know, I didn't know I wanted to conform until you told me I had to. I didn't know I wanted to look behind that door until you told me I couldn't. I'm speaking in the first person, but ladies and gentlemen, this is human nature. This is straight out of the folk tale, right? This is straight out of the, out of the American, out of the fairy tale. Nevertheless, uh, one has to distinguish uh, and separate what happened from what one made it mean. One cannot stopping, stop making meaning, right? So try saying that. I'm trying to express a thought. Say that five times. I am going around making things mean things. Somebody tells me, don't look behind that door. I want to look behind the door. That's what I make it mean. You're trying to stop me from looking behind the door. I want to look behind. So I'll climb around the back. That's perhaps a humorous example. Nevertheless, it is to, in large extent, I suggest, not a, just a feature of Lou Augusta, although I certainly am a human being, but of human nature, that we go around making things mean things. So distinguish what happened from what I made it mean. Expands empathy because the meaning gets between me and the humanity of the other person. I repeat, the meaning gets between you and the other person. What happened, happened, assuming it really happened. And if it didn't happen, then all the more reason to take the imagined meaning out of the relationship. And that enables me to be in the here and now with the other person, right? That enables you to be in the here and now with the other. And that's not an easy thing to do. Be in the presence of another 
human being without interposing a lot of filters, meaning, diagnoses, categories, distinctions, opinions, agreements, disagreements. The list is long, all of which represent on any given occasion a way of not being in the presence of the other person. So that's a whole. And then that enables to say, okay, so this person really, you know, has the experience and then one gets access to it. And that's the empathic moment. So questions, comments about that. You can also, I know, you know, this can be confronting stuff. Send me an email, one word, a rumor of empathy at gmail.com. If you just want to mix it up, just want to talk, so to speak, a rumor of empathy, one word at gmail.com. Like the title of the book. How about that? Insert. Next tip and technique. How are we doing? We're coming up. We got a couple of minutes left. We'll see how, how much time we have. This is big. Distinguish how, okay, so I can see we have like three minutes left, but we can, we can do some work on this. Distinguish how the other person looks from who the other person is as a way of being. Distinguish how the other person looks from who the other person is as a way of being. What mountains they have to climb. What challenges that they have had to surmount or fail to surmount to get to where they are. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, you can't tell by looking. You can't tell by looking. And more to the point, what one sees when one looks rarely makes a difference. Rarely is that who the person is, is a way of being. This is a powerful exercise you can perform while walking down the street. Notice the judgments and evaluations that occur in your thinking as you pass by people on the street. He's hot. She's not. She's cool. He's a fool. Someone's wearing a cross or a headscarf or a yarmulke or dreadlocks or a double-breasted suit or Lululemon gear or rollerblades. They're too thin or too pudgy, bad complexion, great complexion, blades or rollerblades or t-shirts that says something with which I agree or disagree, you agree or disagree. The point is, you don't know a thing about the person. They lack a sense of humor. They have a sense of humor. You're probably not on candid camera, but you might be. And given the pervasiveness of video surveillance, that's definitely a trend, uh, you and I both, but I don't want to necessarily go there. So the point is that all of these distinctions, all of these things get in the way of my being with the other person. And we're going to actually need to do another show on this, right? Because we've got, about whatever, I lost count, three or four actual tips and techniques. And I think a good, honest, good, honest effort to say what they really mean in context and how they work and how they don't work. And so I thank you for joining me, for engaging in this conversation about expanding empathy. I want to give a shout out for A Rumor of Empathy, the book. If you have any questions, comments, I want to hear them. A Rumor of Empathy at gmail.com. Next week, I have lined up an engaging, exciting show with author Stan Shatt, author of a rumor, uh, author of Alien Love, you know, boy meets girl, girl happens to be an alien from another planet, the CIA gets involved, we're going to have some fun with it. See you next week.
you for tuning in to A Rumor of Empathy with Lou Augusta. Please join us again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope to see you again next week. We'll be right back.